The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have a very special guest, Colin Woodard, an award-winning journalist for the Portland Press Herald. He's just finished a 29-section series in the Portland Press titled Unsettled, a brief history about the Passamaquoddy tribe, which covers over 50 years. Uh, we'll talk about that series uh, in a minute. Um, first, I would like to see if Colin uh, is on the line. Uh, Colin, I am, I am indeed. Can you hear me? Uh, I can. All right. I'm gonna. What I'm going to do, Colin, is I'm going to uh, tell our listening audience uh, a bit about your background. Uh, I'm not going to tell all of it. <laughs> it's too long. <laughs> Uh, but, okay, here it is. Uh, Colin Woodard is an American journalist and writer, best known for his books, American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America, The Republic of Pirates, 2007, The Lobster Coast, 2005, A Cultural and Environmental History of Coastal Maine. His first book, Ocean's End, Travels Through Endangered Seas appeared in 2000. He is state and national affairs writer at the Portland Press Herald and Maine Sunday Telegram. He received a 2012 George Polk Award for an investigative project he did for those papers. He received a 2004 Jane Bagley Liebman Award for public advocacy for his global environmental reporting the 2012 Maine Literary Award for Nonfiction for American Nations, and a Pew Fellowship in International Journalism at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He was also a finalist for a 2013 Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism. In 2014, the Washington Post named him one of the best state capital reporters in America. His third book, The Republic of Pirates, is the basis of the 2014 NBC drama Crossbones, written by Neil Cross and starring John Malkovich. Woodard was also a historical consultant for Assassin Greed for Black Flag, which was also set in the time period covered in The Public of Pirates. And one more thing, Colin. <laughs> you just recently got an award. Was it last week? Uh, yes, on the weekend, on Saturday night, uh, the Maine Press Association, to my uh, surprise and, and honor, uh, named me Journalist of the Year, which I was not expecting uh, at the ceremony. Well, fantastic. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much, and for that, that, that kind uh, uh, introduction. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's uh, let's talk about this series. Uh, first of all, I want to I want to thank you for agreeing to be on on the show today. Um, I know you're leaving for parts unknown tomorrow, <laughs> um, but thank you. And uh, I must say that I read uh, 
all of those 29 sections in the paper um, and was very intrigued by the information that came out, some that I didn't know myself. Uh, but my first question to you, Colin, is um, what, what made you decide to do this series on the Passamaquoddy? Well, originally it was because it, 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 we weren't thinking of doing a, a series of this scale. In fact, I don't think the newspaper has ever done a series this large. Um, and originally uh, I had been receiving from various sources, many of whom seemed to be unconnected over a period of months, concerns about the present-day situation uh, uh, for the Passamaquoddy internally. Um, and essentially it was a, uh, concerns about a lack of rule of law. Uh, within the tribe here and now, and in it, there were so many inquiries, and it was, you know, I, I recognize how difficult it is for people within the tribes to be reaching out and sort of airing dirty laundry to the outside world, given the history of everything that happened. So I knew that people had to be really concerned to be reaching out to us. At the, yeah, at the now, Colin, when you world. when you say people, uh, are you talking about uh, members of the tribe? Yes, tribal members, yeah, and in all of these cases, the, the, the concerns were coming from within the tribe. Um, otherwise, I, I wouldn't have, uh, have uh, ventured to, to do any of this, but there were so many different uh, concerns being expressed over time, I realized that it must be fairly significant for, the, for people to be coming forward. And so I started exploring it and talking with people and researching, and uh, quickly it became clear that some of the reasons that there was no constitution for the tribe, and some of the things that were leading to the um, rule of law problems that were being experienced had to do with the land claim settlement back in 1980, and in exploring that, you know, how did how did that come to be and come to be uh, come together the way it did? I kept digging further and further back until I found myself in the mid 1960s in a Maine that, although I was born and raised here, and I'm sort of a historian of Maine, I guess. I found absolutely um, shocking and horrifying, and I realized most Mainers would, and um, that world in the 50 years ago, in, say, 1964, in eastern Washington County, resembled um, greatly um, the situations that were happening in the Deep South at the time, and I don't think Mainers usually, you know, with the, the mainstream Mainers do not think of ourselves quite in that same light. That's right. They don't equate themselves with uh, Alabama and, and those kind of uh, Exactly. States. And the equivalent, I mean, there were, you know, people were, tribal people would be killed and nobody would really seriously investigate it. And um, members of the Indian tribes couldn't vote and all of these other things, which um, tribal members, I think, then and now are acutely aware of, but... Um, some of which have been forgotten or were never known by, you know, the rest of us in the state. And when I started running into things like the slaying of Peter Francis by five white hunters and the miscarriage of justice and prosecution that followed, and then the elimination of their the, the attorney who had teamed up with the tribal leadership to successfully challenge some of these injustices, and had you know, he had just filed a the first land claim suit against the state of Maine for a $150 million trust fund that had been looted by the state without explanation and thousands of acres of land that had been taken. And the moment he served that suit, uh, he was driving home to his office in Eastport and found himself in the middle of an elaborate setup and sting operation orchestrated by the Attorney General's office 
and all of those things, you know, the, the, the combination of those things were so significant and shocking that when I brought them back to my editors and said, you know, look, this is this reshapes the way we think not only about the state um, and Maine's relationship with the tribes and the, 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 the background and backstory to that, but it says a lot, and it's a, it's a reflection on Maine itself and who we are as a people that these things happen and have been sort of forgotten, and it's important that people understand it all because we're a small state, and some of these uh, some of the things that happen there have implications for today, and certainly for the tribes and for the relationship with the state and the legislature and uh, and so on and so forth. So it became a larger project, and it was actually my editors who uh, had the idea that we should make it into a series, make it, you know, whatever scale really needs to be had to really tell the story. And that ended up being a very large scale that newspapers don't usually do. A total of 48,000 words, uh, 29, actually 31 story parts running over uh, 29 straight days in the in the paper. Yeah, and I have to hand it to the uh, Portland Press for uh, for actually putting that information out there, even though it wasn't so uh, nice for uh, for the state. Uh, but I, you know, I guess you, I, you could also say it wasn't nice for the tribe either. Uh, but I, I do. I'm wondering. When you were hearing these um, things about the the the, the internal ruling uh, happenings going on inside the tribe, and and tribal members, were they just talking to other reporters at the paper, and then you got the assignment, or were they specifically talking to you? They were specifically reaching out to me, and as to why I was chosen, I can only sort of guess, but. The previous year, um, I had done a fairly substantial story on the uh, controversy over the uh, allowing alewives to return to their native ground, the St. Croix River. Um, And I think, I suspect it's, um, I may have earned some credibility within the tribe for the way we covered that and and the detail we went into. And so I can only guess that maybe that had something to do with, you know, when they were looking for a reporter to bring this to that they they came in my direction i mean i'm I'm very appreciative for their confidence whatever reason it was but that's my best guess as to why i might have been on the radar screen yeah you know i also was wondering you know before you took on this assignment uh what uh what you know prior to what were your thoughts about uh the native people of maine the tribes well i didn't know a great deal. I grew up in western Maine in North Franklin County, a strong Kingfield uh, Phillips, which is, of course, quite far away from the reservations, and there's very few Native people there. I mean, one of my close friends happened to have been a Mi'kmaq tribal member, but I think, as far as I know, he was the only sort of, you know, person recognized tribal member in my school or even in my high school. Um, so my direct contact growing up wasn't all that large, and like Mainers everywhere in my teenage years, the land claim settlement had happened, and I remember it, you know being in the news and such, but it didn't directly affect Western Maine either. So I, I guess like a lot of people in the southern and western part of the states, we didn't have a lot of direct experience because it was far away and seemed intriguing and interesting, but not something that we knew a great deal about. So after your your research and your I'm sure you interviewed uh, 
tribal members on this and actually went to the uh, to the communities. Um, after doing this, how did your perception change? Um, what's, uh, how did my perception change? I guess, I mean, I certainly learned a great deal more about tribes and the internal dynamics, both of the tribes and their relationship between the reservations of the Passamaquoddy and the relationship with the state. And I think for me, the most significant and surprising thing was just how profound and brutal and atrocious the racism was, say, 50 years ago, which is where the series starts, um, was far beyond what I would have guessed or known, even growing up in Maine and having written, you know, histories of Maine. And I, I knew a fair bit about the colonial history uh, of the tribes and their relationship and, you know, the early contact period when the first European explorers were coming through and um, and some of the colonial era stuff I knew a lot about, but not the more recent stuff and the fact that, you know, the things could be as stark and and frightening as they were was a real eye-opener for me. Right. And I think that was the most significant thing is real, you know, that, that you know, in 1965 or 66, that uh, tribal members at Indian Township couldn't get their hair cut in Princeton on racial grounds. And that, as, you know, even into the 1990s and beyond, um, Passamaquoddy, you know, family would sit down at a restaurant and not be served. I mean, those things to me were quite shocking. And, and, uh, and I guess what was most shocking is that for the people who were telling me these stories just in passing, um, they were so surprised that I found it surprising. And, and that showed the I guess the gulf and differences of experience and perception between, you know, those of us in, in wider Maine, especially outside of Washington County, and people who live these things every day or lived through those events back in the 1960s. Yeah, and, and you started your actual series with uh, the Peter Francis case. So yes, yeah, that happens very quickly. It actually starts with the, there's a, a protest um, against the stealing of a parcel of land by a white landowner at Indian Township uh, in May 1964, so 50 years ago. And at that protest, uh, you know, ultimately four Indian women were arrested and taken to jail. And as a result of that, um, tribal leaders, including George Francis, who was then the chief at uh, Pleasant Point, went seeking an attorney. And the opening of the book is this first encounter uh, between George Francis, who's, I think, 71 at the time. Uh, he had, uh, because there were so few job prospects when he came home from war uh, in eastern Washington County, he had ended up spending a big chunk of his life working for Ford Motor Company in Michigan, and then he'd come back to the reservation, had been so appalled at the conditions and and uh, what the state was doing and the way the Indian agents were despotically treating people that he had um, had become elected chief and was aggressively confronting state officials and federal officials in a way that nobody had in living memory. And he went and found himself, you know, that no attorney would really represent him. He was trying to find an attorney. And the opening of the series is this meeting in May 1964 between George Francis and uh, this young 27-year-old attorney who had just moved to Eastport from New York City named Don Jellers, who was um, 
extremely idealistic and entirely naive and unaware that representing the tribe could get him in trouble. He didn't even know before that meeting that there were tribes there. He'd been so busy setting up this law office. So it opens with that meeting because it's that moment, that alliance between George Francis and Don Gellers that uh, starts pushing over the dominoes because together they start successfully challenging um, many of the injustices, small and large, and Don Gellers starts preparing the first land claims case. And it's Jellers, and, and then the Peter Francis um, slaying happens, uh, and that becomes Don Jellers. The reason it, it, it actually uh, became not only statewide but national news is because Jellers called in the press, and it that in a sequence of events um, start knocking over the dominoes that lead us to the 1980 land claim settlement and, and today. So it's sort of the, the real strong resistance began at that moment and unfolded from there. Now, what about this Peter Francis case that stands out in your mind uh, that made the, the uh, I guess, the strongest impression on on your view? It was, it, in, an, it is a, in a nutshell and in extremis, the um, encapsulates all of the... Um, sort of horror and stark lack of legal protection and rule of law that um, tribal people in eastern Washington County were experiencing at the time. I mean, lots of things had happened, but this case was so stark and horrible. Five white hunters show up uh, looking for young girls to uh, get involved with and are propositioning them, and uh, they come to George Francis's house to try to do this. And eventually, George's younger brother, Peter, who's visiting, who's in his uh, mid-50s, who's, who's visiting from Connecticut, where he has a job at the, at the naval shipyard, he and a, and a neighbor, uh, Christy Altvader, try to sort of deflect these hunters who are drunk and boisterous and obnoxious and trying to pick up 14-year-old girls and stuff. They try to deflect them into, you know, sitting down and, you know, having dinner and get them on their way. And uh, it ends with the five hunters... There's an altercation, and uh, because the hunters have actually have a, a girl in their car, and in the altercation, uh, Christy Altvader is beaten senseless, and Peter Francis is killed by a violent blows to the back of his head with a nail-studded two-by-four. Horrible, horrible situation. The hunters jump in the car and take off, and ultimately, none of them are charged for beating uh, Christy Altvader. And one, all, and the murder indictments are drawn up by the county attorney, but never served. And instead, they serve a manslaughter charge to one of them. And uh, Don Gellers, who was their attorney, kind of blew the whistle in the press, started paying attention. And despite that, it became statewide news. It appeared that the prosecutors were um, perhaps dropping the case or, or intentionally losing the case. And all the hunters end up going free. And it, it it's like it was, it's a case where... It was absolutely horrific. The state um, seemed to be um, failing to seriously prosecute or even trying to throw the case. It had, and despite previous cases, it actually had not only statewide attention with being on page one of the newspapers of the state, but it, 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 the acquittal made uh, Walter Cronkite in the CBS News, which at the time was the absolute dominant 
newscast in the entire country. So despite all that attention, it would seem that this would have been the one exception where justice would have to be served because everybody was watching. It wasn't. And, and that just showed how absolutely stark um, the, uh, the miscarriage of justice really was, because the case is so horrific. It's, it's very hard to read. It was very hard to report. Um, and yet, still, you know, justice was not served, clearly because the, it was in, you know, the victim was an Indian. And it sort of crystallizes everything, I think. And I think it crystallized things for, for many in the tribe, too, that, um, you know, enough really is enough. This can't go on. And remember, this was happening in 1965, and the case was in 66. The civil rights movement in the South is starting to happen. It won't be long until the American Indian movement really takes hold. There's change, and the possibility of resisting the state authorities is probably there for the first time you know, where you actually might succeed in doing so. And my guess is that George Francis, having lived in Michigan as long as he did, sort of saw that perspective. And Don Jellers, you know, you know totally, um, I think you probably underestimated the dangers that he and the tribe might have been getting into, but he was ready to go, you know, all the way for justice. And so that was just one of those seismic events that really crystallizes um, how unacceptable and terrible the status quo was at that time. Yeah, and what really strikes me about this is um, there were some newspaper articles that were written at that time, and they describe how um, after the verdict was handed down, the innocent verdict for Ellingwood. Right, for, for manslaughter. Yep. How the uh, people of the town uh, clapped and... and uh, were just ecstatic that he was uh, found not guilty. Cheering, yes. Yeah. And the accounts uh, from the family members who were there, including Peter Francis's uh, uh, sister and wife, were that they were actually being, you know, cheered and, um, you know, sort of almost teased by the audience and even the accused in the courtroom. So it gives you a sense of a, uh, a very disturbing atmosphere. Um, that, again, for for most of us in Maine, is, is not the way we think of Maine. And it really um, puts forward a, a dark mirror for us to understand where we really came from and where the relationship with the tribes has come from because of all of those things. Yeah, and I remember there was a statement in uh, one of the, one of the paper, newspaper articles from uh, Deanna Francis, who is now passed, um, and, and she was very uh, upset that they didn't, the the uh, the prosecutor didn't ask her uh, about her being propositioned and offered money by these hunters, and the and the tribal uh, members who were witnesses felt that uh, they were not asked the questions that they were asked in the grand jury uh, proceeding. Yes, that's correct. There and the the most logical um, takeaway you can come with from what wasn't asked. And the grand jury testimony, which had been lost, was found while I was working on the series. Um, and so we were able to see what everyone was asked, the full transcript uh, surfaced. And it's very clear that um, it seems like uh, either there was an intentional throwing of the case or some incompetence of staggering proportion with the prosecutor. Um, the most likely seems to be the former was going on. Yeah, and there was... Uh... You know, reading the article about uh, Michael Corey, 
Michael Corey Hinton, and how this has really uh, traumatized his family for generations. Um, in in your uh, in your write up, in your the section about that, um, you yes, say. Yes, I mean they've been struggling for generations since then right. to 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 find justice for Peter Francis, who is um, uh, Corey's. Uh, Gory is his um, great-grandson, and uh, his father, uh, Randy Hinton, has also spent his life um, trying to address this. And, you know, for much of the time, nobody was listening. And, um, yeah, the, the, the trauma, of course, of those events that are passed down to, to both of the families uh, who, were, who uh, were, were touched by that incident with the hunters. And that's one of the things I think is an outsider that was... Um, uh, I don't know, most that, that really hit you, hit me emotionally is that so many people have these kinds of experiences and trauma that have been handed down in families. So many awful things have happened, people being killed and so on and so forth. And it, it just touches everybody. The kind of stories that just, you know, make your jaw drop are seem very, very commonplace and almost are mentioned in a, in a, a passing everyday way, like, these are things that happen to everybody because it does seem like it's happened to almost every family. And it really gives you a sense of just the, the price that had been paid again in that era, because there was no law in a sense for tribal members, you know, they could be killed with impunity. They weren't, they weren't safe and protected. There was that vacuum. Um, and, and the price of that in real human terms is, um, you know, the, the Peter Francis story, um, in its tragic way, um, shows and illustrates so well. But there are all sorts of stories, large and small, like that out there that are similar that have touched so many people in the among the past Maquati. Yeah, and yet when you say so many stories like that out there, you're talking about within the, the tribal communities. Yes, exactly. Within the past Maquati, I don't know as much about the Penobscot Nation, unfortunately, but I, you mm-hmm. know, in the past Maquati community, absolutely. And um, you'd be able to educate people better from the Penobscot um, point of view. But Yes, it seems um, just harrowing um, how many people have experienced these sorts of things and other traumas. And you know, there were there were you know, teachers and priests who schools who were abusing kids for generations, and you know, it just goes on and on again because people weren't weren't protected. You know, they they didn't have their own um, sovereignty or allowed to you know police or have powers themselves, and nobody else was doing it. So they were extremely vulnerable in that era, and that's part of the thing that that George Francis was, you know, leading the the effort to stop. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, they had no voice. Yeah, they no, voice no voice, and no, you know, when you when you called the police, they might not show up or the yeah. ambulance. And then that was the other piece to this case. You know, the yep. fa- the fact that they had called the sheriff, the state police, uh, the ambulance, and uh, nobody wanted to show up. Yeah, nobody wanted to show up, and I can't remember some incredible amount of time for the ambulance to get there from Eastport, like, you know, an hour delay. And this was, you know, the early evening on a Wednesday night, and, yeah, just that level of, um, I don't know, callousness or what it is, but um, it is amazing to contemplate today. Yeah, and uh, I, if you don't mind, I want to read something from your article here. Sure. Uh, where you say... Christy Elfvader was never the same after the beating, family members say. He hanged himself in his basement in 1971. 
For the rest of his life, Kirk Elthvader, Christie's son, suffered from panic attacks that would leave him doubled over, hyperventilating. He developed a stutter, and his hands would shake. He killed himself in 1979. He was 21. And he had witnessed the, 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 the beating um, uh, firsthand, and then had been uh, had to testify, I guess, on his ninth birthday or something at the trial. And according to family members, well, testifying, he was sort of being humiliated and mocked for any, you know, lapses in English syntax, which wasn't really his, you know, wasn't his first language, and things like that, which didn't help any either. Yeah. And you go on to say, there's been no justice. This is what Corey says. There's been no justice, and irreparable harm has been done to my family. Uh, uh, says uh, Peter Francis, 27-year-old great-grandson Michael Corey Francis Hinton, uh, an Indian law attorney uh, at Aiken Gump, one of the country's most prominent law firms. The damage is done, and it's still affecting people, generations of my family, the Altvaders and others in the community. This is the fire that burns within me, he says, adding that his great-grandfather's slaying and its aftermath influenced his career choice. And then he says, there will be justice done. So Corey, from what I understand, is seeking that justice. Yes, and they, they have been for some time, and they're, they're, they're still doing so. I mean, the, the hope would be that um, prosecutors, presumably federal prosecutors of the Department of Justice, would um, be able to look into the case and um, be able to reopen it. Um, so far, that hasn't happened, and you know there there are of course all kinds of difficulties, even with the most well-intentioned uh, prosecution, because first of all, time has passed. Uh, four of the hunters are are still alive, and uh, somebody did a very good job of purging the court files of many of the documents that should be there. The, the file is nearly empty. It seems that a, a lot of stuff in this most high-profile. Um, case of the entire era in Washington County's courts, somehow a lot of the uh, basic materials didn't make it out of Washington County. So that, um, well, further injustice also makes it very hard to um, operationalize a case, but um, the the hope is that somehow that can happen. Yeah, and and you did make your point that uh, this case was really well, very well publicized and and watched by almost the whole country. Um, yes, I mean, it made national attention, and it was on the front page of the, uh, the Press Herald sent a um, reporter up there, and there was a huge front page Sunday story um, after the slaying, and, and then they covered the trial very, very closely, and the Bangor paper did as well. And yeah, at the time, it was a it was a pretty big deal, and there were editorials, call, you know, essentially saying that there was a the prosecution was doing a, you know, a terrible job, and there were serious questions about the case. And yet, you know, still, you know, nobody was justice was not served. Nobody was charged for the, for the, for, or held accountable for the, for the, the death that occurred. Yeah, and I guess you know, after all this publicity and uh, everybody's uh, attention put on this particular case through uh, Don Jella's efforts. Uh, Don Jellis must have become main public enemy number one. Yes, I mean, the fact that he blew the whistle and accused the county prosecutor to the press of 
of throwing, you know, trying to throw the case by not serving the murder indictments. That definitely earned him the ire of the powers that be. And then, well, in 1967, there was an um, altercation between a state police trooper and a tribal constable. A tri- young tribal constable is actually Bobby Newell, who later became chief uh, of Indian Township. Um, but there was this altercation between uh, the two of them and a group of Indians, a fight. And after, in the aftermath of the fight, um, at about 2 in the morning, uh, about a dozen law enforcement uh, officers, state police and wardens and sheriffs and everything, just descended on the reservation and started breaking into people's homes and dragging people out of bed and you know beating people up trying to find the you know the the, the perfect you know, the people who'd been involved in the fight. Um, you know, crazy violations of constitutional rights. And Don Gellers represented them too, so he was directly. Um, uh, taking on the state police at that point, which only uh, lowered his standing with them and the anger, I think, that the you know, established authorities had. And then I think the final straw may have been that at the same time as all that, he then put forward that land claim suit, the, the first suit effectively against Maine. Uh, and I don't think the timing was a coincidence that as soon as he drove back from Boston, that's when he found himself in the middle of a elaborate sting operation involving you know, state troopers pretending to be mafia dons and threatening him and so on and so forth. So he, he ultimately, uh, tell us what, ultimately what happened to Don Gellers. Well, he paid a pretty, a pretty uh, steep price for um, representing the Indians and often uh, with great success. Um, he was, there was a, the Attorney General's office set up a command post in a Calais hotel and embedded a state trooper um, with uh, uh, tribal members who weren't well disposed towards Don Gellers uh, for weeks and weeks. I mean, there's enormous resources expended to try to get this guy and get rid of him. And what they were going to go for is Don Gellers was, you know, he, he smoked marijuana, and uh, he was from sort of the, the counterculture side of the 60s uh, that was going on. He was from New York, and, you know, he believed that that was, you know, that, that was going to, you know, open people's horizons and, and uh they, they were trying to get him on a drug charge, and ultimately, he walks back into his house, and they're trying to get the, the, the guy, the state trooper who's pretending to be a member of a then-powerful and feared Boston mob family. Uh, you know, they're wanting marijuana, and, uh, and he doesn't give it to them. Um, but they then go upstairs and claim to have found six marijuana cigarettes in a jacket pocket in his closet. Um, and this is not, you know, he's not dealing marijuana. He's not even possessing marijuana. It's constructive possession of marijuana, which is a, a pretty minor charge. In fact, uh, even at the time, the legislature had made this a misdemeanor, a fairly minor uh, drug offense. But there was a way that the state could prosecute it as a felony, and they did. Uh, two to four years in prison for six marijuana cigarettes um, being found in your upstairs jacket pocket. And deploying, you know, they had two... Uh, assistant attorney generals and a dozen law enforcement personnel all involved in this elaborate operation over weeks to get him. And the trial thereafter also has the same sort of railroading and suspicious circumstances um, throughout it. And so ultimately he ends up losing everything. He's bankrupted and he uh, flees the country. He's uh, uh, Don Chellers was Jewish and he went to Israel and he actually thereafter he lived on a kibbutz. He 
fought in the 1973 Arab-Israeli War where he was wounded, and he brought all of the um, all of the court documents and filings to the Justice Ministry of Israel and disclosed everything seeking to be allowed to practice in Israel because you're disbarred if you have a felony. You can't practice law. And uh, on reviewing all of the information in the case, the Israeli Justice Ministry basically said this is the most outrageous miscarriage of justice we've ever seen, and he was immediately allowed to practice law. Not only that, he returned to the United States in the early 1980s and did essentially the same thing with the uh, United States um, uh, Circuit Court there in New York City, so a federal court who also um, affirmed that he was in good standing and was able to continue practicing law there. The state never tried to track him down as a fugitive or anything else. They were just happy to get rid of him. Uh, so his life was turned upside down, and he always had that hanging over him, and he was literally run out of the state. And his former um, summer intern, uh, Tom Tureen, who many people may know that name, uh, ended up taking over the, as the uh, tribe's attorney and uh, went forward with his own version of the land claims case. Now, wait, uh, from, not, not, not Jellers, uh, yeah. actually, didn't he, he file for a pardon? He uh, has... Very late in the game, like uh, in just in the past few weeks, he and his family, you know, once the series had come out, had been working to uh, try to obtain a pardon here in Maine. And unfortunately, um, uh, Jellers, who had uh, he'd taken his uh, Hebrew birth name when he moved to Israel, so for the last uh, 40 years, he's been the rabbi to be eventually safe. Um, and he had been uh, attempting to get a pardon after the series came out, but he was also um, diagnosed with cancer, and unfortunately, uh, he died uh, on October 8th. Um, so the family, his family, is still seeking to get a pardon posthumously, um, and uh, that, that effort is ongoing. Did I, somewhere, I, I'm not sure, I, uh, somewhere I heard that that uh, was turned down, his request for a pardon had, had been turned down. My understanding is that it hasn't been put forward yet, that the family still... Um, trying to collect all the correct documents to submit it. I don't believe that it's actually been been evaluated by anybody oh, okay. um, as of yet. Okay. So um, that that's going on now with their attorney. Okay. So that was that was quite a um, a time. I mean, that was really uh, some history that uh, I think really brought to light how the the state really truly felt about the tribes and how they were how they were treating them and i in jellers you know you got to say that this guy uh had some guts <laughs> he was <laughs> he was heroic actually he uh, absolutely did i mean he was um he was uh persistent and i think he didn't always judge the dangers he would be walking into but he was fearless and he definitely had a um, abiding and powerful sense of justice and wanting to pursue it. And uh, you know, for for anybody, for you know, anybody who was oppressed or affected, and he saw the the outrageous circumstances that that the tribe was facing, and uh, threw himself wholeheartedly into it. So he was very idealistic. I mean, extremely idealistic person. Yeah. For with. You know, with the, the shortcomings that can come with that too, of um, not realizing some of the realities. I mean, he um, he was gotten rid of and picked off because he was a single attorney, and I think not 
he didn't realize just how ruthless the authorities really would be and how um, far they would go, that the attorney general's office would conspire to get rid of somebody in what appears to have been a setup uh, involving the state police and possibly even some of the judges who heard the cases. Mm. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me that the files have uh, sort of disappeared. It did seem consistent with other events. And you mentioned that he he brought all of the paperwork uh, to Israel with him? Uh, yes, he, he has kept a great deal of it. He was a... Um, um, studious in his um, in his work and his legal briefs, and he kept copies of things that the state managed to lose. Unfortunately, he wasn't officially a defense attorney or anything, say, in the Peter Francis case, so he wasn't directly involved. But in the cases where he was, like his def- defending himself um, against the state or in his um, representing the Indians who had been involved in the in the police fight and later police um, brutality cases in 1967, you know he had things that um, that others didn't. Pieces of trial transcripts and stuff, um, and so on and so forth. So yeah, he had he had all of those materials. Unfortunately, there's other materials that should exist that don't, like those associated with the Peter Francis slaying. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So then, then the next, uh, the rest of your the series, uh, you, you uh, look at the land claims. and uh, Yeah, that, that's the next big thing. I mean, there's a, a long resistance and um, blocking of roadways and, uh, and a long struggle. But yes, uh, ultimately the next thing that happens is Tom Tureen, um assumes Jeller's role and with a different uh, legal theory um, keeps pursuing the land claims case and as we know, ultimately, the, a negotiated settlement does happen. What's your uh, what's your your view on the land claims? Well, clearly, the tribes, as the land claim as the land claims were coming forward, the tribal negotiators um, were in a tough spot because there was a lot of leverage against them and time pressures, both because. Uh, as the, the negotiated settlement was being negotiated, uh, it was becoming more and more clear that uh, Jimmy Carter was going to be defeated in the coming election by Ronald Reagan, and Reagan was um, known to take a dim view of these kind of settlements. So there was the pressure to conclude something before he left office, but also there had been some Supreme Court decision that cast a cloud that possibly if the Supreme Court reviewed some of the key cases upon which the um, the argument that Eastern Indians are indeed eligible for federal recognition. It all has to do with the interpretation of what Indian country means under an old federal statute. And um, Kareen and his legal team had successfully challenged and overturned um, long assumptions about what that meant, and that indeed it did apply to Indians in the Eastern states. And that was a revolutionary concept, but there was some concern that the Supreme Court might step in and say, no, 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 and overrule other courts. And they'd made a ruling in a case that led people to think that might happen. And on top of that, the main congressional delegation had been directed by by Governor Longley first and then uh, further taken up by Governor Brennan to try to pass a law in the United States Congress essentially um, 
stopping the Indians from ever having their day in court, you know, retroactively saying, you, you, don't, you don't get to hear your case uh, heard. And so there were all of those dangers. So there's a great deal of pressure to accept the compromise and the state's position on the compromise. One of the things that was included uh, and became non-negotiable was the stuff where the state jurisdiction would be included in a way that it isn't for other federally recognized tribes. Remember that um, Passamaquoddy and Penobscot, once they uh, obtained uh, recognition in the late 70s from another case, they had federal recognition. They, there was no state jurisdiction for a brief period of a few years before the land claim settlement, and Maine was very eager to reassert that. So I say all that because the, the negotiated settlement over the actual money and acreage is, um, I mean, all of these things, the, 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 the tribe had to take deals, the tribes had to take these deals, I think, because um, they were um, being coerced and they knew that there was a danger that all of it could collapse. But should should the tribes have had to take that state jurisdiction? That's the kind of thing, that's the thing that I think as I've been researching the uh, story, I find the biggest question mark as to um, why that was when it didn't happen in many other states, including eastern states, and why that was such an important and pressing element for Maine in the negotiations. I think that because that is connected in many ways, it created gray areas about jurisdiction and review that have only further exacerbated the sort of rule of law questions uh, for Maine tribes, because it's not always clear whether federal or state or tribal jurisdiction in a particular matter will apply. And the only way to find out is to bring it all to court, which is a really difficult and time-consuming way to do things. So there's a, there's a lot of gray areas and ambiguity that only create um, grounds for mischief of different sorts. Yeah, you know, I, as you were, you were explaining that, I, I, I got the, uh, the image in my mind of, of a gun to the head. So in, in, you know, I think it, there was that. There was certainly a great deal of leverage being applied, and the, the tribes also had some leverage. That's why um, there was a negotiation going on. There were there were a bunch. Of, they'd won every case so far to everyone's surprise, and if this ever actually did go to trial, in theory, the tribe might win. The tribes might have won two thirds of the state. They didn't want the land, but they could have won uh, a much greater bargaining position. So there was a great deal of pressure for both sides to negotiate, um, and, and both had some leverage, but um, yeah. there but was a the, real-time pressure. Exactly. Yeah. Where the threat came was was from Reagan. Yeah. Because uh, they knew he would... Other yep. Supreme Court, the Supreme Court case also was casting a, casting a pall that there was a, a suddenly the possibility that the courts, the legal system, might reverse themselves on that essential judgment. So that was part of the calculus, too, was they... The, the Tureen did not want to see that happen either. And, um, and you know, being the case as a non-lawyer, I can I think I see exactly what, you know that the danger did lie. There, there were dangers there, um, so everyone was under quite a bit of pressure. But certainly, yes, the the, the pressure to quickly um, agree and settle with the state was large, and the state was not backing down on the jurisdiction. Yeah, and so um, even though in some in some respects, the uh, it, it did improve uh, the economic state of the tribes, uh, the land claims. Uh, but in other respects, uh, 
as you say in your article, it was a it was a curse. Yeah, I mean, I think it it, it was a curse compared to that little window of a few years where the tribes were under you know direct had federal recognition and were like tribes in the West and elsewhere. There, there was something given up that, that that was briefly had by the tribes, and a lot of research out there um, uh, shows that some of the tribes nationally who have been most successful in both economic and cultural rejuvenation, uh, that there's a direct relationship between the degree of actual self-determination and sovereignty and how successful you are, whether or not there are casinos. And it doesn't, they've, they've tested for tribes with casinos and without, and in both cases it holds true. There's a relationship. Um, all of that, though, um, the research also shows, all of that is lost, though, if there isn't rule of law, if there isn't checks and balances internally within tribal government to ensure accountability of um, of government officials and government to individuals in the tribe, and that there has to be a way of recourse. And that can be structured any way you know, tribes wish, and, and different tribes have created very culturally appropriate and distinct solutions to that. But the sort of academic research shows that, yes, self-determination and sovereignty are good. So the reduced sovereignty that main tribes have compared to those in the West might not be serving things well, but also that you, to get those benefits, you do need a, some form of you know, constitutional order or checks and balances that um, ensure rule of law at the tribal level, that the tribal government and officials are responsible to and accountable to tribal law. And so those are the two lessons in the situation we have now doesn't really hasn't achieved either of those things, which I think is, is, has has been tragic for the past Maquati at least. The uh, the past Maquatis and uh, well, I'll just say the past Maquatis. Now they just uh, came away from a tribal election, and they uh, did <laughs> in September. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in your articles, you you mention uh, some of the the uh, the conflicts that uh, the 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 now elected chief uh, uh, Billy Nicholas was involved with in his family and and, and others and. Uh, my quite I guess, and I I've asked you this question before. I mean. Do, do you think that were you surprised that uh, Billy was uh, reelected? I guess uh, I guess I wasn't shocked um, in that the, uh, the, the 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 way that politics has been conducted and sometimes corrupted um, is through you know patronage uh, apparatus and people counting on on officials for jobs and for um, assistance uh, when they need it, and there are pleas that are put out that you know, if, if you keep you know your allies in place, that they will provide for you, and there end up being you know they can have significant blocks, and that can be great concern. Yeah, if but uh, let me just point matters. something out here. I mean, yeah. and that's that's done in state in state government and in federal elections and everything else. I mean, you see Absolutely. that happen all the way from your your t- local towns to the to uh, the, the the state governor's office, to uh, you know the president's office. Absolutely, you see that in government everywhere. But the difference is that without 
that apparatus of rule of law, if you if you challenge it, um, it's an internal tribal matter. So it has to be it would only be able to be heard by tribal courts, and the tribal courts have ruled that in the absence of a constitution, they lack the ability to review or judge the actions of tribal government. So in essence, there is no venue to hold a you know tribal government to account to tribal. Well, okay, I, I'm just going to differ with you on that one. Uh, basically, we have, you know, we 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 elect our our people, and we have a uh, tribal council, uh, and uh, you know, I, you know, I think the the difference here is, first of all, you you can't take a template from the majority government and lay it on tribal government. It just doesn't work. Uh, the way that we uh, address our issues is through speaking uh, in tribal council in our general meetings uh, in our chief and and it's it's a true democracy uh, and if some of these things uh, are happening and they're not happening in all of the tribal communities but if they are happening in a specific community then that tribal community uh, will get together uh, and will address it it's a good point. Um, the, the question would then be how how that gets addressed, say at Indian Township. Yeah, and and, and it gets addressed enough, how they yeah, it gets addressed how they decide to address it, and that's that's the reason that there are you know that there is internal uh, tribal mechanisms and uh, the tribes are uh, free to govern themselves. That that's part of being a, a sovereignty, uh, and whether the majority culture agrees with that or not, uh, it, it doesn't matter because that's that's the way it is. Oh, yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. I'm saying that when the tribe has decided that, you know, thus and so will be the practice or the law or the way things yeah. are supposed to work, that the, the, the tribe the tribe has, has created its own rules, whatever they wish them to be for internal tribal matters. If somebody violates those rules, there isn't a mechanism set up to... Um, to prevent that, and that that's where a lot of the, the difference is between, say, a town government official being corrupt or a governor, which all happens, is that there are more mechanisms of review and accountability that are clear to um, to, to challenge that uh, in courts or or having freedom of access laws that apply and those sorts of things. And the, the, yeah. the budgets are a secret from tribal members. Yeah, it's uh, a, it's a, the, the, the mechanisms that are developed to address that vary, uh, you know, from tribal community to tribal community. And, and it is true. I mean, some, sometimes there are no mechanisms to address it, uh, but not always. I entirely agree that the tribes um, should create the, you know, make the decisions about um, how governance should happen and what the rules are. But it's always tricky in any human civilization if there's no um, established way to, um, you know, if somebody is violating those norms, if there isn't a way to, to um, effectively, you know, challenge those and have them comply with the with, with the, the rules or laws or, or or norms that have been accepted by the community. That's where it seems to me that the sort of rule of law vacuum has opened up. You know, I, that that could very well, that could very well be. Uh, but again, I, 
I say that even if there is a rule of law vacuum, then it's still up to the tribal communities themselves to fill it. Oh, absolutely. I'm not suggesting yeah, that and, and anyone outside of the Passamaquoddy tribe should be trying to impose any sort of solution. It's very much... Right, uh, and I think that... Uh, people need to decide. Yeah. Um, it's entirely up to them what they want to do about the circumstances, but my observations in doing the research is this is why there are those accountability problems and the, um, the ability for um, things, things to happen that I think most in the tribe don't intend or appear to... Sure. to um, not to be in variance with the um, laws and accepted norms that are supposed to apply, and that there's not an easy way for for that to be, uh, for, for tribal members themselves to um, to address this, and that's the shortcoming. So it's in, absolutely, it's, it's entirely um, up to the to Passamaquoddy um, whether any of this stuff is good or bad or what is to be done. I just think that there's a missing tools for them to do so um, that I think is unintentional, not intentional. Yeah, and I, I agree with you with you on that one. Um, but I do want to thank you for, for writing uh, that series of articles and for bringing this, a lot of this injustice uh, to light um, because, believe it or not, people don't hear a Native voice and their ears are more tuned to uh, non-native, unfortunately. So, uh, again, I I just want to thank you and the, and the Portland Press for for uh, doing this, uh, writing this article in in, in such a, a, a an in-depth way. I think you've really done the, the tribes a service with this. So well, thank you. Thank you. That was that was the hope, and I I hope it um, is serving to do some good in 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 whatever respects. So uh, I wish you well on, on your trip. <laughs> thank you very much, and thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for being here. Uh, thank you all for joining us. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Uh, I want to thank my guest, Colin Woodard, uh, for joining us today. I also want to thank our engineer, Amy Brown. Uh, the, uh, the music for our show uh, is... a a track by Rolf Richter called Little Eagles and uh, tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows WERU appreciates its many business members during each pledge drive we announce the names of our business members on the air and encourage our listeners to please frequent those businesses that support WERU when it comes to building strong sustainable communities we all play a part if you are a business that recently received a membership renewal letter from us, please take a moment to respond to the letter and send in your donation today. Because the sooner we receive renewals from all of our members, the easier it is for us to keep providing great community radio. Thank you for keeping WERU going strong.